0: on a variety of management topics which includes strategic leadership art thank you thank you for being on the show
1: well tats thank you so much for inviting me this is great
0: yeah so i I looked on your your bio and you've been writing for i guess almost 36 or more years
1: (laughs) (laughs) i started out writing about computers and I got really bored writing about computers. I'm probably the first person to get bored writing about computers. And then I started looking at management, and I ended up writing about futures and future scenarios. I worked with Peter Schwartz on a book called The Art of the Longview, and then I began teaching scenarios to people who were doing digital media. So I've been looking at the future for a long time.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you first started, do you remember the first thing that you published? What was the first article that got published?
1: Well, the first article I published was about, actually it was about the internet, but it was way years before the internet. It was back when all we knew was the bell system. It was even before the bell system was broken up in the eighties. So it was, I don't know if you remember the bell, you know, the telephone system used to be called the next best thing to being there. And this article was called better than the next best thing to being there. And it was, it was in a magazine called the Coevolution quarterly, which was later called the whole earth review. It was for the whole earth catalog, basically.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Now you talked about futures, scenario planning. Like how, how do you, how do you think, how do you think about the future? How do you get your head around what's going to happen?
1: Well, there's a lot of ways that have been developed but the one that works best for me is to first of all you know that taking an existing trend and predicting it is not going to work so for instance you know the price of oil it's going up it's going up 2% a year year after year after year after year all you know is that you don't know what's going to happen next year. <laughs> past performance is no guarantee of future performance So, but what you do know, you do know certain things are predetermined to happen. So for example, we know how many 20 year olds there are going to be in 2022, because we know how many people were born 20 years ago. We have no clue about how many one year olds there will be. I mean, we have a clue, but we don't know for sure, but we know how many 20 year olds. We know how many of them will be college bound. And we have a pretty good idea, a good enough idea about how many of them will be in cities. We know how many 90 year olds there will be. And we, can, we have a pretty good idea in some countries about how many of them will have been affected by the pandemic. And we don't know in other countries. So as you go through, you start separating these things and you start to say, okay, what do we know for sure? Well, one of the things that we know for sure is that there will be a certain number of people in cities and it will be at least the proportion of people who lived in cities, maybe it'll be slightly less, but it'll, you know, but all the reasons to keep moving to cities will continue to exist. If that's going to turn around and people are going to stop living in cities, we won't know that for sure for another year. So you know that that real estate as it's been is going to continue to go up. You also know that the movement towards dealing with climate change is not going to abate. It's going to continue. There's no plausible future in which all the leaders of governments around the world say we're not going to care about climate change anymore. Regardless of what you think about whether it's caused by human activity, in order for that to change, there would have to be a discernible drop in all of the indicators of rising temperature, melting glaciers, burning forests, all of that. So we know that that's not going to change. Therefore, we know that there is going to be a dramatic need for cities to be protected, you know, to be less, both less emitters of pollution and emitters of carbon dioxide, and also to be affected in their environment. We know that material science has had a pipeline of activity for 20 years, and we know that it has been commercialized incompletely, right? We know that there's a lot of material breakthroughs that are, you know, not seeing light in terms of construction, et cetera. So that's that's an uncertainty. But we know that sooner or later, that will reach a tipping point because it always does. There are innovations that reach a tipping point and become like the Segway where they're pretty much ignored. But even those innovations end up being adopted into things like motor scooters or connected cars. So there's innovation does not tend to just sort of drop away without any kind of impact. So we know that there are going to be issues around material science. We know that there are going to be issues around 3D printing, and we know that it's going to be harder and harder to get things through customs. So therefore, those things we know for sure. What we don't know is whether that's going to translate into factories built close to customers that make a toaster on Monday with the same production system making a blender on Tuesday and an an alarm clock on Thursday.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've uh, interviewed different business leaders for a long time. Was it easier to make a decision back when you first started, when you met these executives, or is the modern executive better equipped to make better decisions? How do you sort of weigh that?
1: Honestly, Tats, it's never been easy to make a really good decision because the most difficult decisions are not about technology. Some of them are about money. You know, how much risk do we want to take with this million dollars? A lot of them are about taking the right risk with million dollars while you have people in your company who are vested or invested in the last way of doing things. And sometimes they're right. And sometimes they're absolutely not right. So the big decisions are all about how do I they're not about, you know, where are we going to make the investment? They're about how am I going to walk into Jane's office or John's office and tell them we really have to change the way we're doing things? And those are the decisions people agonize over. And, you know, that was back in uh, ancient Rome, you know, people were saying, how am I going to like walk into Caesar's office and convince him that we need to send, <laughs> send the chariots up north or whatever. So it, it's, I do think that there are ways in which complexity happens now in that it's harder to delay a decision and not see the consequences, except in certain industries like housing. But in most industries, the time between learning about something that must be addressed and addressing it, that's shrinking.
0: Yeah, so it's almost like a, a forced action. You need, you need to do something or else there's implications. I always am amazed when some people look at business case studies and they try to draw black and white conclusions on <laughs> adopting innovations or this or this company should have done this. And they, you know, looking at it, it goes, well, that would have required firing 20,000 people to do that. How can you sleep at night with that? Yeah, so I always wonder. So you just touched on that.
1: Well, it's interesting because so I make a lot of my living doing editorial consultation, which is anything from helping people think about their ideas all the way to ghostwriting and nitty gritty ghostwriting. And then figuring out how to place your ideas in the world at large, whose podcasts to go on and what channels to try to publish in. It has never been as easy to get your ideas out into the world as it is now. And yet it has never been as difficult to find the information you're looking for and know that it's good.
0: <laughs> well, how do you, well, it's hard, but how, how do you tackle that challenge?
1: I think we're figuring it out. We humanity are figuring it out right now. I think right now people tackle that challenge by relying on who they know, which has some great aspects because you don't have to worry about the Dewey Decimal card system anymore or any card system and some terrible aspects because your knowledge is only as good as the person who you, you know, as your, as your network. The other issue is that a lot of people are writing things that overlap with each other. They're discovering the same brilliant management insights about how to assemble an agile team or how to understand something that involves technological issues. And But the other part, you know, someone at the next company has discovered it and someone at the next company has discovered it in the next company. And they're all writing books about it. And they all think that they're like the first to discover it which is fine and some of the books are really good but somebody who really i think of it as the photoshop effect have you ever so this is me because i i needed a photograph adjusted i needed to blur the background of something and i i'm reasonably proficient with software but i didn't know photoshop so i thought great i'll just like log i'll just like boot it up And it'll be obvious because software is intuitively obvious. So I booted it up and I realized in order to know that one thing, and I started like looking around the internet where, you know, where the like how to blur the background. In order to figure it out, my brain is so different from Photoshop that I would have had to spend three or four hours just becoming a generic expert in everything to do with Photoshop in order to answer that one simple question. Or I would have to get somebody to sit over my shoulder and say, that's the one thing you might have to do, which in which case I might as well just give it to them to do. That's what reality is like now. That's what all of the, all of the trends and disruptions, we're all trying to figure out the thing that we can pick up and know within five minutes when actually it's going to take a couple of days of real insight to get to that point where it's second nature to apply the right judgment
0: yeah i and mean it,
1: that's what we want that's yeah. what we want in reality from knowledge
0: yeah so i mean as an executive you're constantly having to pay attention to all these moving pieces whether it's inside the organization or not mean, what depth of information or skill set or knowledge do you need to effectively manage that?
1: You need to be a quick study and you need to be humble. You need to recognize that no matter how much you know, you're not going to know enough. And you're going and if you know too much, it's going to be as bad as knowing too little because you a lot of the things you're going to need to know are going to be from outside. And at the same time, we're all we're all making the decisions together. So I think there's a lot to be said for talking candidly. I mean, I think that's one of the great things about podcasts, whether widely followed or narrow, scope high, scope low. They're all, they require candid conversation. The only thing you can't do is skim them. And the other thing that you need is, well, So your your topics all have to do with buildings, real estate, urban development, and uh, residential and business buildings. So by definition, you are focused on Habitat. By definition, Habitat is a developer of and reliant on habits, human habits. In fact, it's right there in in the name. So it's everything that people do as a routine, codified and solidified into the physical structures around them and the use of land on which those structures sit. So you, the people listening to this, have the benefit of a lot of experience in things that are not obvious to outsiders, things about costs and regulations. And how long it takes logistics and how long it takes to bring something over and whether remodeling or from scratch and toxins and all of the other things. And they have to be willing to embrace that knowledge and stand in that knowledge and then be willing to absolutely leave it behind when something comes up that contradicts it. So you need absolute closed minded dedication to what you know an absolute open mind. As as I say this, it sounds like a platitude, but it's really difficult to do in practice.
0: (laughs) Because you have to be execution disciplined, but as soon as the right type of information or that tipping point comes, you need to be able to react on it. Is that what you're saying?
1: Exactly. You need to be able to speak and listen and move from speaking to listening and back again and keep your speaking judgment continually calibrated with what comes next hmm. and you know you guys are talking about permanent structures that are torn down in a day but that until they're torn down are permanent so there's a real incentive to not change there's a writer named Dominic Endicott are you familiar with him
0: no no tell, tell me about it
1: so he wrote for the magazine I used to edit he is an investor And he noticed that the world had passed a remarkable and completely overlooked tipping point, which is that people who are in their 20s are more likely than not to actually know their great grandparents. I mean, many won't, you know, and people are having children older, so it's a little bit more difficult, but. Many, many more. There used to be nobody knew their great-grandparents, except very, very few people. Now a great, many people, probably more than not, know you know we have four generation families. And the last time that happened was at the end of the nineteenth century when we had three generation families, people knew their grandparents. Before that, human lifespan was too short. At the same time, it's very unlikely that we're going to have the kind of economy that will admit that will allow each generation to have its own housing. And those who have their own, you know, I, I now have three daughters of college age. They're fleeing the nest. We have to make a decision about whether to downsize. We've had my wife and I have had and, and have older parents I've had my first grandchild was just born. So I'm now in a four-generation family. Do we all live together as families once did? If we live separately, can we afford all those separate structures? If we can't, is it possible to develop modular structures that would allow us to, for example, expand the house when we have high school age children and contract the house when they all go off on their own? And if that's possible, why isn't it happening? And should it happen? And Dominic, who is an investor with an eye on demographics and materials costs, really believes it should, it not only should happen, but it will happen, but it will take a certain amount of capital and some legislative, you know, some changes in laws to make it happen. Would that in itself be the kind of thing that would solve certain social problems? Interesting. Or what did it add to them?
0: <laughs> There's always <laughs> uh, unknowns, right? Exactly. And now, c- certain people, and I don't know if, if it's, this is a correct statement, but certain people seem like they're very good at predicting and, and mapping out the future. You, you've mentioned some of those characteristics looking at things that are known. What other is that true? Are c- certain people really in tune to that naturally, or is it just luck?
1: There's a man named Mark Anderson who publishes a newsletter called Strategic News Service. And he yeah. has a 90, it's it's 95% success rate. Every year he makes predictions about what's going to happen the following year. He has a 95% success rate. And he's very careful, certain things he doesn't make predictions about but he does two things. One is he does look at the predetermined elements and he's very good at spotting what's predetermined. He does three things. The second thing he does is he looks for patterns and patterns are if then types of correlations. So for example, if a country puts in place a one child policy, they are going to see fewer children. 25 years from now. And chances are that more of them will be boys than girls. That's an example of a pattern that we could recognize in the abstract. When it comes to pass, we shouldn't be surprised. And there are a lot of things that you can kind of do like that. They're not exactly predictions, but they're indicators of where things are going to go. And if you are attuned to them, you can have a pretty good record of predicting. An example of that, I taught a class on scenarios. In 1999, one of my students did the math. We were talking about, we're going to have video on demand. We didn't call it streaming yet. We called it video on demand. And he calculated how much processing power it would take. It would ta- in order to have video on demand, then it would take the equivalent of all of the semiconductor power in the United States. But at the rate things were going in development, there would be about enough semiconductor power surplus to have video on demand, something like 2007, which happened to be the year that Netflix introduced streaming. Right now, there is, we know that the pandemic will do one of two things. It will either end At some point, those of us who are watching are certainly sobered by what's happening in India and and Brazil and other countries that are in the grip of it. But it will also, unless it turns out that there is a really rapid adaptation by the virus and it keeps adapting and adapting and, and mutating, as they say, and variants continue to exist, one of those two things will happen it'll either be controlled or we will be dealing with a different kind of control in variants, tragically. That becomes a pattern that affects other things. If you know that there is, that there are variants and they're continuing, then you know that international travel will be curtailed. Just as you knew that people were not going to go out to bars, even if they were permitted to, you know, some would, but those who lots of people would be prudent and afraid of being caught. And if they didn't learn to avoid doing that in advance, they'd learn the hard way, but they'd learn. Those are examples of pattern recognition. And you kind of, you know, you draw on your sense of human nature and how things affect And, and, you know, builders. have been doing this every, for years, in figuring out which neighborhoods to build in and how people are going, you know, how far away from, commercial districts, people are willing to live and and how they would get there and which forms of transportation are like, in order to make judgments about that, you have to be skilled at pattern recognition. The third way to anticipate what's going to happen in the future, as Alan Kay, the uh, star hardware and software designer put it, if you really want to know what's going to happen in the future, you create it. And creating the future has never been as easy.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Getting to people to pay attention to what you're doing has never been as hard, but it's never been as easy to try something and, and put it out there. And we're going to see a lot of fundamental innovations. Some of them will be scary, but a lot of them will be really, really beneficial.
0: Yeah. I mean, to that statement, creating the future, to what extent does... An individual, an organization have the ability to affect that?
1: I think in the world of software and the internet, it's very easy to do something that will create the future. Somewhere right now, somebody is generating a form of media. Like Clubhouse, you know, that came from out of nowhere, but somebody's creating something that nobody has seen, and it's going to be everywhere within a year. When it comes to things like materials and energy, and infrastructure, and all of that, it's much more difficult. Partly because just the R and D is so much more expensive in the world of atoms. And partly because it requires so much more coordination. There isn't as much room for different people to do different things. But the problems that humanity faces right now require interest in generating problems of that sort. So there's, for example, there's a firm in, in Boston called Hello Tomorrow that's looking at exactly how to create those sorts of innovations or foster them and there will be you know there are lots of others yeah
0: wonderful now for yourself personally what is the future hold for you
1: <laughs> <laughs> well there's the, the things i know for sure and the things i don't know about a year ago I, I was uh, editor-in-chief of Strategy and Business, which is a magazine published by PWC, one of the largest corporations in the world. So I know what it's like to work for a very large company. And I decided to leave, and I left. The day that I left happened to be, and, and I was going to start, you know, a freelance business. The day that I left happened to be the day that the first person with COVID-19 landed in the United States. That is known. So that sort of did a number on it. Well, it changed the direction of my freelance business and everybody else's business. So that's an undetermined, right? I was fortunate in that I was able to build a business doing thought leadership, and I have some great partners and collaborators, and another business involved in leadership development. and, And there too, I have some great partners and collaborators and yet it didn't happen the way that i or anyone else had thought it would and it's still not clear what's going to happen next on the other hand i do know i have 3 i have 3 daughters all college age one is married and has a child and two are in college i know that they are going to continue along the path i know that i am going to continue <laughs> to be there their father I know that I will I know what's going to happen because generations of parents have watched their children become adults so I have a lot of examples to follow and they all seem to follow similar patterns lots of difference in the details but the overall thing is you they don't stay <laughs> <laughs> and you're kind of glad they don't but you want to have a relationship with them and and that becomes and so for me personally I think one of the I think the underneath your question is is a question which is if we want to act, if we want the kind of life where we get the reward and recognition that is commensurate with what we put into it, and where we feel that we've lived well and that we've been noticed for the things that we want to be noticed for and have had the relationships that we want to have. Is that easier or harder in a highly structured life versus a very independent life? 30 or 40 years ago, it was easier in a structured life. There weren't as many examples. Now, every business person, I think, every successful business person in some way is breaking the rules. And the challenge is how do you break the rules without risk? If you don't break the rules, even if maybe not the legal rules, but the kind of rules of like, this is the way we do things around here. If you don't do that, you are not going to differentiate yourself and you're going to have to compete on price. Even in building where maybe you differentiate by location, but you still you either compete on quality or you compete on price or ideally you have both that means that everyone in business is trying to figure out the safe way to be dangerous <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like safe way to be dangerous
1: i like <laughs> oh, that's what i want i will just like everybody else i want to be safe and dangerous too
0: <laughs> <laughs> i think i said something similar today maximize growth without bringing the the absolute the implosion into the table right so
1: well you want to invest you want your investments to pay off and you don't want to have to worry about cash flow so in order not to worry about cash flow you have to have reserves in order to have reserves you have to be safe in order to be safe you lose opportunities so that's like so, what are you going to do? There's no easy answers, and we're back to your very first question about how do you make those tough decisions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I guess i I think with any business owner, we all struggle with these type of questions, and I think it's it's really nice to hear, just from you know, you've been studying this for so long that we are not alone. It doesn't get any easier, but I think this is part of what makes it fun.
1: And I think so there's two things. one. There's more slack in the system than we think there is. And if, and you know, a lot of Adam Smith, way, way back, his other book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, the theory of this, you know, his main book was about, you know, basically why capitalism works. And it works because people operate with self-interest. His second book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, was about what happens when people have too much self-interest. Going on. How do you keep people who figure out how to game the system from ruining capitalism for everybody? And he said there's basically three approaches. One is rules and, you know, basically regulations and laws. And he said that will work up to a point, but it won't work because law is a blunt instrument and people will always figure out ways around it. The second is the community and shame so you know we shame the robber barons or we shame the people who have turned their businesses into uh, monopolies or monopsonies or whatever it is that doesn't work either partly because some people are just don't pay attention to shame being shamed they don't care but mostly it doesn't work because the community values aren't static and they aren't reliable A community is not a reliable witness about whether somebody deserves shame to be shamed or not. So what you need is you need a form of internal guidance. I wrote a book with a neuroscientist, Jeffrey Schwartz, and an executive coach, Josie Thompson, called The Wise Advocate. And basically, you know, the idea is that there's always an inner voice. You can always tap into it. And one way to think about it is, can you look at yourself with the same attitude that you would look at somebody else. Can you be an impartial spectator to yourself? It's sort of like that cheeky teenager that you were like years ago who said, I'm not going to do what they do. (laughs) I'm never going to be like those people over there. When you grow up, can you hold that attitude, but maybe be a little bit more forgiving and a little bit, you know, cut yourself some slack, but still say, I'm going to live up to the standards that I thought I, you know, that I thought everyone should live up to. Or is it going to be, everybody else can live up to the standards, but I'm going to cut corners wherever I can. Those who have a sense of themselves, I think are the same people who have a sense of the future.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Can't just become Pull themselves out of the situation. I guess you talked about the high road, I think, in, in your your book, and just yeah. kind of look down and say, what is happening? How does it, how are people interacting? How is everything working as a system?
1: Well, so the the book, the high ground concept, basically, at any moment of major decision making, you you basically move in one of two directions. You either move towards the transactional or you move to the strategic. Transactional is, you know, let's solve a problem, make a deal, close a deal, give people what they want. What do they want? Let's figure out what they want. What do I want? Let's negotiate. Essential. Any leader who can't be transactional is not going to survive. But you also need to be strategic. And the way to be strategic is to think about what you're thinking, think about what other people are thinking, beyond thinking about whether they want, think about, and they're asking for this, what is really on their mind? What is the situation called for? What are our long-term plans and goals? And how are we going to get to them? Just very basic things that are, in order to do that, you have to step back. Well, it turns out that if you focus your attention in this kind of strategic way, you trigger parts of the mind associated with parts of the brain that we called the high ground. So to be a little bit nerdy, um, the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex (laughs) is a part of the... How do you spell that? (laughs) Uh, You don't want me to say (laughs) Um, I could, but you know, airtime would be a little bit tedious.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: But dorsal is like, it means upper or fin. So like, I always think of it as like a shark fin. You can kind of see the dorsal part coming up the, up out of the water. And it's It's related to the part of the mind that has an identity, a sense of self. That's related to, and then there's a circuit between that and the amygdala and other parts of the brain that are triggered by events. So, you know, sort of like warnings or, uh uh-oh, something's going on, or I better pay attention. And then the executive center, which is the one that Daniel Kahneman wrote about, where you have a working memory, the more, the bigger your working memory or the more capacious, the more complex items you can keep in mind at one time. And that has also to do with your ability to look at things with multiple perspectives and to control impulse and emotion. All of those things that we, when we say someone's an executive, we either mean it's the, it's one of the, I guess it's the only word that has the same meaning in neuroscience and business. It means the ability to master the complexities of a situation, either in your thoughts or in your company. And when you follow that circuit, the high ground circuit, it becomes easier and easier to follow. Your neurons kind of bind together in that way, in that pattern. And over time, you know, just like if you exercise a muscle, it becomes easier to use that muscle. They they change the way that you think.
0: Wonderful, I'm gonna be respectful for time, but I have one more question. Now, if someone is operating on the transactional low ground level and you wanna help them or they wanna help themselves get to the high ground level, what is one tip that they can do to get there?
1: Think about what people are thinking instead of what you want. Think about what you want. Think about what they want. But also consciously step back and say, what are they thinking? And that will, first of all, that will slow you down from reacting instantly. And that's good. But it, it may be that what they want is for you to react instantly. But then that will also allow you to kind of, is that how I... Is that how I'm going to react? How am I thinking? So think about what they're thinking. Think about what you're thinking and cut yourself some slack. Forgive yourself and forgive others to the extent that you can and keep your eye on the long-term plans and goals.
0: Wonderful, Art. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. It was, it was wonderful.
1: Why, my pleasure. I'm grateful to be your guest. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. I also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes, entrepreneurial tips, and more. See you over there.